Remember, boys, this house is a temple. As fantastic as any pyramid or castle you'll ever see. It don't know time or space or any of that hogwash. But the forces of evil are always after this gull, and you've got to help me to protect it. So don't let no one touch the dang thing, you hear? Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews you can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you like this show, I do encourage you, while you're on my website, Quipster.net, you can check out the link to my other podcast that is very similar to this one, except it covers films of the 1990s and newer films that are related to films of the 80s and 90s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. Very much a companion podcast to this one. Find the link at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part series looking at haunted house films from the 1980s. I actually was going to call this Victorian haunted house films because these films are set in a very specific style of haunted house, but... I did a little research and I found out that technically the house in House 2 is not a Victorian. It's a little bit newer, it does have a lot of Victorian styles to it, but it's not quite technically accurate. So I'm just going to call this Haunted House Films, although the intent was to make them tie in to the house. House 2, The Second Story, kind of a clever title there. It came out in 1987. It is a PG-13 rated film, unlike the first film, which was rated R. It does have mild gore and violence and language. The runtime is an hour and 28 minutes. The main stars are Ari Gross, Jonathan Stark, Royal Dano, Lar Park Lincoln, Amy Asbeck, Bill Maher, and John Ratzenberger also make an appearance. The director and the screenwriter for House 2 is Ethan Wiley. Now, I mentioned on the previous episode that the first film was a surprise success, although it didn't necessarily surprise the makers of the film because when they engaged in test screenings prior to the release in 1985, 86, the house was pretty successful in those test screenings. So there was actually some talk at that time that they should go ahead and start preparing for a sequel before it was even released. And it seemed inevitable after house was released. It did score very well in the United States in theaters. It was the highest grossing film in the end in New World Pictures history to that point, although it did get superseded by Steve Miner's next film the following year, Soul Man. It did robust business, not just in the United States. It actually did quite well in Great Britain and West Germany and France. And what was surprising about that was that these are places typically where the horror films, at least of those times, were not really performing as well as they were in the United States. So it was obviously helped by a very light and funny tone that translated well into other countries. Now, the producer for the House series, Sean S. Cunningham, he ran the sequel idea by New World Pictures president Bob Ramey, who consented to the sequel if they could get the foreign distributors to guarantee advances like they did with the first film. So to get distributor interest, Cunningham needed a script. So he asked House screenwriter Ethan Wiley if he could write another screenplay for him, but he had to get it done in about two weeks. Wiley agreed to doing this, but he said only on condition that he direct it. 
Steve Miner, the original house director, as I mentioned, he was busy doing Soul Man for New World. He was unavailable. So Wiley mentioned to Cunningham that he had collaborated very closely with Miner during House's production. He was rewriting scenes. He made a lot of comedic suggestions. He also observed how Miner was operating behind the camera. Cunningham agreed. In addition to those reasons, Wiley seemed to have a vivid imagination. He had a very unique sense of humor that would lend well to the follow-up, and his effects background probably would result in a great-looking movie at a low cost, if nothing else. Cunningham informed Wiley that the $3 million budget, though, was not going to cover most of the original cast returning, because whenever a cast member returns for a sequel, usually they expect more money. But, you know, maybe they could afford George Went to star. George Went seemed agreeable at the time, so Wiley built a story around George Went's character of Harold, the nosy but very likable neighbor in-house. He also had an idea to bring back Big Ben as the heavy. After the house was destroyed by fire at the end of the first film, it gets rebuilt and he would be back. And with this script in hand, Cunningham secured a $25 million five-picture deal dubbed the Cunningham Collection after he received $4.5 million in pledges by four overseas territory distributors. Walter Manley of Manley Productions announced this deal at the American film market in 1986, and the first release of the Cunningham Collection would be House 2, The Unexpected, as it was called at the time. The other films in the works were to be another Ethan Wiley film. It was going to be a New York City-based rock and roll mystery thriller called Hot. There was also a film called The Brawlers, an edgy comedy adventure written by either Dan Vining or Dean Reisner, depending on which source you believe. It features American sailors on leave in Bangkok. There would be a a screwball romantic comedy called Dating Delilah, a a film called Angela from Deirdre Higgins. Higgins would go on to co-write House 4, coincidentally, and there was also this love story that Cunningham had spent two years working on as a project for himself to direct called The Vision. Unfortunately... If you know your movie history, none of these other films other than House 2 came to pass. Now, the more Wiley contemplated his story idea, featuring Harold and Big Ben coming back, the lamer it seemed. It made little sense that Harold would be haunted by Big Ben. Big Ben was generated from Roger Cobb's fears as chronicled in House. It didn't make sense that he would carry over somehow into Harold's own fears. Plus, he thought it would be boring to use the same house, the same props, the same rooms, the same premise. And so he thought about it some more. And given that George Went wasn't that keen on returning, he decided, you know, maybe he should key in on the title House. And this gave him a new idea. He repitched it to Cunningham. He said that the House series, instead of following the story from the first film, it should instead be kind of like an anthology series, like a Twilight Zone-esque or EC Comics series that was its inspiration anyway. Each entry would be a separate film from the last, but it would carry over two key things. One is that it would be set in a house where pretty much anything could happen within its walls, and also it would carry over this offbeat mix of horror and comedy. He set about coming up with a new script idea, and he would retitle it to a more clever one called House 2, The Second Story. Now, this change in direction actually suited Cunningham just fine. Cunningham had a difficult time shaking the Friday the 13th series as the only one that was important in his resume. He continued churning out what he felt were joyless formula sequels seen by many in the industry as the epitome of everything wrong with the horror genre at the time. This house series would be the antidote that he had been looking for all along, bringing fantasy and fairy tales into the mix. 
Cunningham loved the fantasy genre. He had once tried to make a, a Hansel and Gretel movie with Wes Craven back in the 1970s, a successful and very classy mainstream fantasy anthology series could catapult Cunningham into the forefront of Hollywood producers as he had been trying to do so long. So for the sequel, it was decided to concentrate a little bit more here on comedy than gore. They were going to broaden the appeal of the film by securing a PG-13 rating. They would also work with Marvel Comics on doing an adaptation that would appeal to teenagers. Audiences at that time Cunningham felt were growing very inured to the shock scares that he had been drumming up in Friday the 13th. He thought that they should entertain these audiences instead with a fantastical story and characters that they should come to like and care about. And with this formula, they could rejuvenate one of the oldest premises in the horror genre, the haunted house film, and deliver innovative stories that cracked smart and funny enough for today's audiences who wanted to experience horror in a way they'd not been experiencing, at least for some time. So for the new story, Ethan Wiley was inspired by the genre films that he watched with his parents when he was growing up. He had a lifelong love of westerns. He had watched them incessantly with his father. His father was such a fan of the genre of westerns that he actually named Ethan Wiley after John Wayne's character, Ethan, in John Ford's The Searchers. Now, for the horror side, Wiley remembered a lot of classic horror flicks that he would watch with his mother sometimes on the television. Those horror movies were now considered very family-friendly, and Wiley observed that there was a kind of a dormant market here for horror movies made today that could entertain entire families with elements of romance and adventure and comedy and creatures that were both adorable and terrifying, just like they were back in the 1950s. Speaking of 1950s, the film actually opens in that era. We find Charles and Judith McLaughlin, they hand away their baby, Jesse, to adoption. And that is to protect Jesse from retribution by this powerful ghost that is coming to haunt them named Slim Razor. Slim has appeared in the couple's mansion demanding that they hand over a crystal skull. The couple confronts Slim to reveal that they don't have it or really know where the skull is, and Slim ends up killing them. Flash forward 25 years, aspiring artist now, Jesse, the son, he's all grown up. He moves into his inherited but long dormant home with his girlfriend, Kate. Odd artifacts abound, including one that is obviously missing from a mantelpiece. Jesse and Kate are soon visited by Jesse's rambunctious friend, Charlie, and Charlie's pop singer girlfriend, Lana, also known as Puce Glitz as their stage name. Now, while they're looking through the family photos, albums in the home, Jesse spies pictures of his namesake, his great-great-grandfather, also named Jesse, who is an outlaw from the Old West who earned his keep finding lost treasure, including the crystal skull with giant jewels in its eye sockets. Slim Razor also factors into those old pictures. He happens to be Elder Jesse's partner in treasure hunting, and the album goes on to detail the falling out between Slim and Jesse over the skull. An old book on Mexican legends that younger Jesse finds in the home tells more stories about this crystal skull. The skull can unlock mysteries of the universe, and it can also grant everlasting life to anybody who possesses it. And the book also relates the ancient Aztec practice of burial with one's jewels. So Jesse and Charlie determine that the skull must be buried with the great-great-grandfather, and they dig up his grave nearby and find the skull. Unearthed, though, they also find the elder Jesse is reanimated to life, preserved by the skull's magical powers that happen to be apparently true, although he is looking quite old at 170 plus years old. 
However, it also returns the spirits of others who've been looking for the skull from various times and dimensions, including, of course, Slim Razor, who is out to claim what Jesse stole from him prior to abandoning him in the Mojave Desert to die over a century before. Now, House director Steve Miner, although he had moved on to Soul Man, he had recommended one of the co-stars of Soul Man, Ari Gross, to star in House 2. Miner thought that Gross was a perfect choice to lead a movie, and this would be a big break for him. Although Gross, when he read the script, he really couldn't make heads or tails of the concept. He did blow everybody away with his initial read and his audition, so he was signed immediately. Now, for the supporting roles, they looked to primarily populate it with comedians and comedic actors. Comedians Jonathan Stark and Bill Maher, they auditioned for both the best friend role as well as the record producer that would come into play later in the story. Now, Jonathan Stark, he came from the world of improvisational comedy. He had a better understanding of the absurd tone of House 2, and he also shared the most chemistry with Gross. Bill Maher, he seemed to have a little bit more of a, a darker edge. He would be better as the smarmy record producer character, so he got the latter. Now, many of the actors hung out together frequently when they were not filming. They also claimed that that helped their interactions in front of the camera. Stark credits House 2 with having a great cast that generated laughs both on and off the set together, and he claims that this was the most fun he's ever had in making a movie. Laura Park Lincoln, she was also chosen for her chemistry with Ari Gross in her auditions. She credits House 2 as the first step towards securing femme fatale roles that she would be known for afterward. She also enjoyed working on the film. She's disappointed that a lot of her scenes were jumbled out of context in the editing phase of the film. And a lot of her best scenes, she feels, ended up on the cutting room floor. The film also marks the cinematic debut of comedic actress Amy Yazbek. Yazbek at the time was hungry to get her first big break. She lied to the producers about her experience and talent to try to land the role. Puce Glitz, her stage name persona in the film, she was supposed to be a punk rock singer in the script, but the final product ends up making her more like a pop star like Cyndi Lauper or Madonna for a scene where she has to dance around in her, in her panties lip syncing to her trademark song. Yazbek put on an extra pair of underwear just in case something embarrassing was to happen to the first. Yazbek did become very good friends with Jonathan Stark in particular on the film. Stark claims he had an immense crush on her during the shoot, and they both still remain very good friends to this day. Devin DeVasquez, she also appears in this film, playing the virgin, the Aztec virgin, kind of a ironic twist. She was a former Playboy centerfold during this period, although the producers actually didn't know that when they cast her. She also happened to win the spokesmodel category on TV's Star Search in 1986 as well. Now, many actors from classic Hollywood auditioned for the elder Jesse, known as Gramps, in the film. But Wiley decided he wanted to cast Royal Dano because Dano had a, a very distinctive voice. It exuded lots of personality despite having to wear a lot of makeup and prosthetics. To make him look 170 years old, his voice, his personality would come through despite the makeup. Dano did feel mildly insulted when he was informed, well, they weren't really going to need a lot of makeup to make him look 170 years old. The biggest hurdle for Dano was that he'd recently had quadruple bypass heart surgery, and that required Cunningham to pull some strings at the last minute to try to get him insured and on board. Now, Wiley, in working with Dano, he regarded him as a, a national treasure. He was a consummate professional on and off the set, a gifted comedic actor in front of the camera and an all-around great guy who regaled 
everybody on the set with anecdotes of working with some of the greatest filmmakers in Hollywood history. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock and The Trouble with Harry, as well as several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show. He also worked with John Huston for a couple of films like Moby Dick and The Red Badge of Courage. He was very popular on the set for A Taste of Old Hollywood. They also secured George Wentz's colleague from the TV show Cheers, John Ratzenberger, to appear as an adventurous electrician named Bill Towner. That was purely a coincidence. They weren't necessarily trying to strike a Cheers motif in their films, but Ratzenberger just happened to audition the best of the people that they were looking at. Ratzenberger quipped that he was being typecast here into a dork in uniform roles, at least in this period of his career. Now, he secured the role not only because of his comedic skills, but he had surprising physical fitness and talent for somebody who looked kind of pudgy and middle-aged at the time. But that came from years of martial arts training. He also learned how to sword fight and tumble. He was a stage actor for quite a while in London, which is where he learned a lot of his acting skills. Ratzenberger, who was also a gifted improvisational comedian, he changed his dialogue and his actions seemingly with every take which made the production crew and the editing team complain to Wiley incessantly. But Wiley waved off all of their criticism because Ratzenberger was bringing such great personality to the role, he felt that it was going to be worth the headaches to try to piece together later. And that kind of embodies Wiley's approach to his first time as a director. Although it is his first directorial feature effort, things actually did go very smoothly for Wiley, who, due to his prior experience on the technical side of things, he was able to address a lot of the mechanical problems that typically plague the technical crew, the creatures and the puppets, all of those things he managed to make sure that they were dealt with before they caused problems during the shoot. He also understood when to swap out different puppets for different shots, as well as when to leave something just to a matte shot. And he also knew the jargon of the technical crew, which kept things humming along. And because he was also in charge of the script, he knew what was physically and technically possible before he would put it into the story. And that made him a better screenwriter, knowing what would be possible and what would not, given the limitations of the budget and the available technology he was afforded. Anything impossible was nixed from his story. Now, the cast and crew reacted very favorably to Wiley's very calm, very easygoing demeanor during the shoot. Wiley says he didn't think anxiety and tirades resulted in making a better movie. If it did, he would do those things. But he felt it was counterintuitive to work creatively with a, a lack of sleep or to not collaborate fully with what happens to be a much more experienced cast and crew, given that he is a first-time director. Because it was Wiley's first film as a director, he, he was like a kid, and the actors loved his exuberance because he was willing to let them play along with him and join along with his imagination of where he wanted the story to go. To stay very loose and fun between takes, the actors all joked around a lot. When they were working with the puppets, for instance, the actors noticed that when Wiley yelled cut, the people operating the puppets would stop, and that made the puppets look like they would just go limp, like on the spot. So Gross and Stark noticing the puppets doing this, they would start doing the same. They would fall lifelessly to the floor when Cut was yelled by Wiley, and that became kind of a running inside joke during those scenes. Now, I mentioned that the Victorian mansion is not necessarily here. The house happens to be a Richardsonian Romanesque, built in 1891 by Thomas Stimson, the former Thomas Stimson mansion, located in Los Angeles at 2421 South Figaro Street, not far from the campus of USC. Over the years, it's been used 
as a frat house for a few years, coincidentally also a convent for a few years. It also was used as housing for students at Mount St. Mary's College. The interiors, though, were not filmed there. They were filmed at Laird International Studios in Culver City, also known as Culver Studios. Coincidentally, at the same time, that house creator, Fred Decker, was at the studio shooting the Monster Squad. So Wiley and Decker, who were good friends from the time of their childhood, they would visit each other's sets during the making of both of their films. Now, House 2 does have a, a kitchen sink approach to entertainment. It mixes a lot of slapstick comedy with this Indiana Jones type adventure. You know, you get vibes of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull way before its time because of the use of crystal skulls here. A lot of old Western tropes, swashbuckling action, dinosaur movies also appear in this film. Wiley here is establishing a house in which normal rules just do not apply. Wiley and Minor, they had discussed during the making of House that one of the strengths of that film was that anytime somebody entered a room, the audience actually didn't know what to expect. So in House 2, Wiley wanted to continue on that tradition. So each time they enter a new room, it's like a portal to a new dimension. Some of them will be scary, some of them funny, most often funny, to try to keep audiences off guard. They enter the Old West or an Aztec temple or a prehistoric jungle. You can go to almost any time or place within the rooms of the house here. Now, while House 2 has an all-new cast in front of the camera, the crew behind it does remain largely intact from the first film. You have cinematography, once again, handled by the wonderful Mac Alberg. Production designer Greg Fonseca also got to stretch his imagination across multiple and widely varied alternate dimensions on this very ultra-tight budget here. Special effects were designed here by Chris Wayless. Wiley had worked with Wayless for a couple of years on Gremlins, and he really begged him to join him on his first feature, House 2. Wayless did accept, because they were friends, on the condition that none of his designs would be changed. Wayless had just worked on three consecutive, very demanding, high-profile gigs in Gremlins, Enemy Mine, and The Fly. He was creatively exhausted. He needed something to do that would be much more fun and relaxed. So, due to the lack of budget, though, Wayless did have to keep the crew that was working with him small, and he also had to limit his own hours that he billed. Sometimes he would spend his free time helping out his friend Wiley. And because Wiley had learned how to shoot puppets from Wayless, they were very much in sync on how to set things up before each scene. Unique creatures were on the docket, such as a catter puppy, that is a caterpillar, in body, with the head and tail of a Pekingese puppy. Wiley came up with the catter puppy idea actually years back, not for this film specifically. He was studying design with Wayless. To give him inspiration, he would visit zoos and aquariums to observe animal shapes and movements. And during that time, he meant to sketch a caterpillar, but he noticed that when he sketched it, it looked somewhat canine because it had kind of a dog tail. So jokingly, he kind of went with that drawing and he drew a dog head with that caterpillar and he dubbed it a caterpuppy and he showed it to Wayless at the time. Wayless thought it was a terrible concept, but he did admit it was very funny. And that anything goes nature of House 2 gave Wiley the perfect opportunity to finally use it and to make his mentor, Wayless, actually bring it to life. Now, another highlight is a two-foot-tall baby pterodactyl puppet that they use in the film. They nicknamed it Bippy. The marketing department kind of gave it that name behind the scenes. Wayless had a much more difficult time with this puppet because of its articulated wings. It wouldn't fully close, and the technician's arm also had to be inside of Bippy to fully move it. And that made it much more difficult for flying scenes or scenes where there were close quarters. For instance, a scene where it has to be inside of a, a small cupboard was really hard to fit the technician's 
to kind of give it movement. So they kept shots very brief in those moments. Phil Tippett did get hired to try to give a little bit more action that you couldn't do with puppets. He did about 17 stop motion animation snippets, especially of Bippy doing such things as demolishing a kitchen or running upstairs or moving about its jungle home. And many of the puppet creatures used in the film were cannibalized by Wayless by other creatures he had lying around his shop. Wayless also provided the zombie makeup for Gramps as well as Slim. He used a prosthetic mask created by Mike Smithson for Gramps. Because Royal Dana was a recognizable actor, Wayless felt that he didn't really want to cover too much of his face. And we were also supposed to identify with Gramps much more, his humanity, so we should see more of his expressions and he would be covered with warmer tones. Meanwhile, for Slim, his portrayer, Dean Cleverton, he was not as well known as Royal Dano, so his performance tended to sway much more toward over-the-top movements, so his makeup would be much more exaggerated and wild. And the only input that Wiley remembers giving Wayless on any of the looks for anything in the film was to give Slim Razor long red hair like Willie Nelson, who he was a huge fan of. Now, House 2, when it was released, it disappointed at the U.S. box office, despite all of this effort. It debuted at a lowly number nine, the first film just about tied for number one when it was released, but that was back in February. This was during a jam-packed summer slate in 1987. So in the end, it had trouble finding oxygen at the box office and only grossed just a little under $8 million in the United States. It picked up another couple million dollars overseas. The humor here, I think it misses the mark. More often than not, the characterizations are just too bland to really stand out fully, despite all of the energy that the actors give to their roles. The romantic comedy aspects to the film between young Jesse and his girlfriend, and then an old flame in the waiting seemingly later, and then there's this Aztec princess played by Devin DeVasquez. Those are all dead on arrival. Jesse's buddy, he's kind of deliberately overbearing, but he's never quite as funny as Jonathan Stark seems to be portraying him. The two older character actors in this film, I think, give the best moments. Royal Dano brings a lot of sparks of life to his character of Gramps. However, the material is never quite as good as the performance that he's giving to it. I think the biggest highlight of the film in terms of performances is John Ratzenberger. He's very memorable in this film, very witty. But unfortunately, Ratzenberger is not quite on the screen long enough to save the film from its mediocrity in most other respects. Bill Maher, he's good in his smarmy role, but he also doesn't get to deliver very many laughs in that particular style of role anyway. For the rest, there's a lot of cuteness on display, but it's not quite enough to fill a 90-minute fantasy into something you haven't seen before and done better in a lot of other films of the 1980s. Although audiences who did see House 2 as children still retain a lot of fond memories of it. Some call it a Goosebumps story before R.L. Stein's book series called Goosebumps for Kids came out starting in the early 1990s. Now, Cunningham has stated that House 2, it probably failed to succeed to the heights of the first film, at least financially and critically, despite some nifty ideas that are thrown in here, because the horror elements were just deemed too soft for the audience that they were targeting in their marketing. People expected a little bit gorier, a little bit darker, and that was something that they were going to go with in the first iteration of this film, but it seemed to be, with each revision, wiped away into going much more a comedic route. And unfortunately, House 2 doesn't really achieve a good balance of scares and laughs. It goes mostly for laughs most of the time, but the humor value here is very mild. I mean, Wiley wrote the script in a very short amount of time, and he was revising on the fly, so he was relying on a lot of his actors to improvise 
a lot of the best stuff. And unfortunately, not everybody is as gifted as John Ratzenberger or even Jonathan Stark in doing so. So there is definitely an energetic silliness to the film. Goofy characterizations, I don't think they're going to get you very far without a coherent storyline to wrap these things around. So even if you find it, you know, modestly amusing, I don't think there's enough palpable tension or, or suspense to really keep you interested in the main story. So you watch it, there's a collection of funny scenes and funny characterizations, but in the end, it does fall short, and that's why I can only give House 2, the second story, two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being the kind of movie that I could recommend to most people, and that which it's lacking here is a very funny script. Ethan Wiley is actually very funny, and he's very talented, but he just didn't have enough time to get it all together. And his focus was definitely much more on trying to direct this film and get it to the finish line with a very limited budget. And unfortunately, that resulted in a film that is often out of focus and doesn't always make a lot of sense. So House 2 is, unfortunately, a two-star effort, at least by my scale of things. If you saw this when you were younger, maybe you have fonder memories, as I mentioned. Now, if you're a fan of the, the cast, Ari Gross and Jonathan Stark, they actually worked together again on TV's Ellen in the mid-1990s. Stark happened to be a writer and producer for the TV show Ellen, and Gross was a regular actor, at least for the first two or three seasons. A screenplay was written by Alan Warner and commissioned by Sean S. Cunningham to be House 3. There was going to be a follow-up to this, but the lackluster results of House 2 made it get overhauled by Leslie Boehm to a much more sinister and darker horror flick called The Horror Show. It would be a standalone film in the United States, but in many parts of the world, it was still dubbed House 3 because of the pre-existing distribution inroads there, so that when there was an actual follow-up to the first House film, they had to call it House 4 that came out in 1992, despite there never being an official House 3 in the United States, so it became very confusing for whatever fans actually remained. House 3, by the way, or the horror show, was directed by the visual effects supervisor of House 2, Jim Isaac, who happened to be friends with Ethan Wiley from their grade school days in Marin County. So it continues on. I will eventually review House 4, but it will not be the next episode because it takes place in the 1990s. So I'm going to reserve that for my other podcast to the 90s and beyond. So at some point in the future, you will hear my review of that, but it won't be right away. If you have your own thoughts about House or House 2, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and Instagram are also there where I include extra bits of information about the films. And if you want to get in touch with me, my recommendation is to write to me. You can find my contact information, my email address at my website. Just to let you know, it's quipster with a W, quipster at gmail.com if you ever want to get in touch. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, we're going to go straight very well away from the comedic aspects of the Haunted House series of House to a film that came out in 1980, and it's very well regarded by horror movie fans, although it doesn't really quite get a lot of the praise that a lot of other horror films of its era tend to get, like the Amityville Horror or The Shining, but it definitely should be talked about in the same sentence as those films. In fact, Martin Scorsese calls it one of the most scary films ever made. I'm talking about 1980s The Changeling, featuring George C. Scott. If you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking that out before I get to the review on the next episode. The Changeling from 1980. But until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip 
around the world in 80s movies. Yeah.